Our uh, second lesson is from the Gospel of Matthew. It's printed in your liturgy. We're continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus, of course, speaking. My good Hunter, did I turn it on? Okay, great. You've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. So when you're offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before going to the altar. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who's looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery, with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than the, for the whole of your body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you've made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Hey, this is the gospel. It's hard to say amen sometimes, right? It's like, what was all that? <laughs> In a minute, we're going we're gonna to confess that these passages in particular that presume that we have a first century mindset uh, are extremely difficult to access, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would open our ears, that we would hear the gospel, that we would see Jesus, and that we would, through the power of your spirit, follow Jesus more faithfully, because as we've thought about what you've said here, we trust that your spirit would be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray, amen. One of the things that Jesus is most famous for saying, and the saying that I'm going to refer to in just a moment, actually comes a few chapters later in Matthew's Gospel. But one of the things that he's most famous for saying is, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It reminds me of Anna's prayers of the people this morning. Inhaling and exhaling God's rest and peace and love. This is how Jesus wants us to think about what it's like to follow him. That his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is the same Jesus who in our passage this morning says some really intense things that not infrequently cause people to feel very stressed. The bar seems so high. How can I ever live the way Jesus is talking about? What's up? Does Jesus sometimes say things that encourage folks to relax in God's grace? And other times say things that invite people to clench their fists, white-knuckle themselves into a temporary state of, in their view anyway, to be really moral living, religious perfectionism? Does relaxing in God's grace mean not having to hear and think about intense exhortations? I would suggest the answer to those two questions are no and no. Jesus' messages should always be heard as coming from the one who gives us an easy yoke and light burdens. And that an easy yoke and light burdens are also accompanied comfortably when heard the right way, comfortably, by very intense exhortations. This morning, I hope to help us see how all of this works in the context of what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, in these very intense exhortations. I will have some measure of joy if at the end of our time together this morning, we can see that the confrontational language that Jesus is using in his dialectical approach to the way in which the rabbis, the scribes, and Pharisees of the day were interpreting the law, you've heard it said, okay? You heard this just the other day. I'm going to say this, all right? And it's different. If we can track with Jesus, then I think what we'll end up being able to do is we'll be able to understand that Jesus shows a way to keep the law more fully in a way that brings human flourishing to our lives and in a way that feels like an easy yoke and a light burden. And I think that along the way we're going to see paradoxically, that the teaching in Jesus' day about how to interpret God's law was actually what was burdensome and tiring and exhausting and leading ultimately away from human flourishing. One of the problems that we have 
when we come to a lot of passages in Scripture, I alluded to this earlier, and this passage in particular, is that we have so much historical and cultural distance, right? It makes it hard to understand what's going on, especially when specific ways of living, like mundane ways of living, um, and thinking are at play, which is, that's what's going on in this passage. Interpersonal relationships, et cetera, et cetera. For example, the whole thing about not swearing, right? The very end of the, of the, uh, of the reading this morning. What on earth is going on there, okay? Well, the first century New Testament history people who know about these things tell us about an elaborate system of oath-making wherein people would make oaths that they did not intend to keep, okay? And that they, they or at least they, they wanted an escape valve, right? They wanted to, maybe, maybe I'll keep this if it's convenient or if I can, but I, I want a way out, okay? And so, um, now by the way, the original teaching in the Old Testament law uh, is from Leviticus 19 where it's written, you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your, your, of, of your God. I am the Lord, which is, by the way, right next to you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. Okay? That's where the original teaching comes from. But apparently the way it was being played out in Jesus' context made a mockery of the intent of the law. The intent of the law was, of course, to encourage people to be honest and forthright with everyone with whom they had to do. But in Jesus' day, they had devised ways of swearing by things that were inconsequential enough to let the one who did the oath-making off the hook if need be. And in fact, there was a whole interpretive um, business in the temple of the rabbis sorting through like, you know, when did an oath have to be kept and when not be kept? And this is way beyond my pay grade. Um, I can point you to New Testament uh, first century scholars who have lots of stuff written on this and um, actually need to take more time uh, to read the history of this because I'm sure that it's entertaining in a dark humor, Monty Python-esque sort of way. Um, probably dating myself with the Monty Python reference. YouTube, okay? Quest for the Holy Grail, Life of Brian, et cetera, et cetera. Um, had a medieval history professor one time, such a great guy, and uh, I asked him, this is in the 80s, okay, so people actually heard of Monty Python then. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Geary, um, how close is, is Monty Python to medieval history? And, and he said, well, it's really more, you know, did medieval history come out of Monty Python, or did Monty Python come out of medieval history? In other words, those guys knew what they were doing with their uh, sense of humor. All right, nobody really knows who Monty Python is, obviously, so <laughs> strike that from... Um, Jesus would say that the way of living characterized by, you know, making oaths... Um, like, the closest thing probably for us is that, you know, um, when you're a kid and um, 
Of course, I never did this. I was such a rule follower, right? You know, I'm sure I did it. Um, you know, you'd, you'd make a promise, but you'd cross your fingers behind your back, and sometimes you so beware of people who come making promises with both hands behind their back, because they're just, both sets of fingers are being crossed. So you don't even mean it, right? So this is like the closest we can probably get. Jesus would say that developing an entire way of, of skirting the responsibility to be honest and forthright in all our dealings, Jesus would say that that's the exact opposite of an easy yoke and a light burden. Jesus would say this is actually a really exhausting way to live. Not just for you, but for the community of people around you. Jesus says, why don't you just really lean into a life where your yes will be yes, and your no will be no, and you will be truthful with folks. That way of living won't lead to exhaustion, but it will lead to goodness for you and the community of people you exist in. Now, but notice, I didn't suggest that leaning into it would be easy at all, <laughs> okay? Certainly not easy in a happy-go-lucky kind of way. It is really, if we're honest with ourselves, not so easy to be honest and forthright in all our dealings at the imitation of God standard that Jesus puts forth here. And if you think that it is easy, just ask anyone you are close with <laughs> about a time that you have frustrated them by something that you have said you would do but didn't do. Or ask anybody you're close to if you frustrated them about not really being forthright in the way that you've talked to them about something. All of us live here, right? We, you know... To follow Jesus in a, in a, a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light, um, it's not easy in a happy-go-lucky sort of way. It's easy in a life-giving kind of way because it leads to deeper human flourishing, not only for us, but for those around us. And that leads us to the actual come-to-Jesus moment of this homily, literally, come-to-Jesus moment. Because when we come to Jesus and follow him on his terms, we're signing on to the best and fullest way to live. And our journey will be guaranteed to be marked by daily failure on our part. By daily failure on our part. Speaking of failure, I'm reading a book for Lent. And it is called, maybe the best name ever for a book on, you know, a book on Lent. The name of the book? Failure. In it, the author Emma Ineson engages the topic of failure in conversation with contemporary society and traditional Christian doctrine. And I might add, she does it with some sly humor. One of the things that she says about failure that really can't be said enough is that we ought not to look at it as something that disqualifies people from living robust lives, but rather, in a sense, make peace with the fact that failure is 
as she puts it, part of the weft and weave of life. Maybe you know you're reading a British person when they just effortlessly say things like part of the weft and weave of life. Part of the texture of existence. The question is, what do we do when we fail? And what do we do when those around us fail? She goes on to say a lot of good things about learning from our failure and about how having the right attitude to our own failure will help us be good friends to those around us when they fail rather than rushing to judgment over them. Really what she's tapped into in her book and brought into imaginative conversation with our world is the age-old teaching of the church that in order to grow, we must accept ourselves as people who constantly mess up but are still loved and held strongly in God's grip. And then we see ourselves in the freedom, and when we see ourselves in the freedom of God's unfathomable love and strong grip, we're free not to settle for the nonsense of reworking the intent of God's law into something that we imagine that we can manage and look good at doing in the process. In each of the instances that Jesus brings up when he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's inviting us to begin a journey with him where we will not settle for human religion and game playing, but actually try and fail, and try and fail again, on and on, at living a life that is nothing less than a journey towards imitation of God. You are on a journey toward imitation with God, and it will be marked by failure after failure. And that's not because I know you. <laughs> that's because that's what God says in the gospel. And there's a sense in which we say to that, okay, and be at peace with it. Because it gives us the courage to go deeper into understanding the intent of God's law. And it leads us to be able to think about God's law in these sorts of ways. A life marked by a reading of God's law like that would sound a little bit like the Heidelberg Catechism. When the Heidelberg Catechism takes up the question of what is the intent behind God's forbidding of murder. And the question is, does this commandment refer only to murder? And the answer is, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. And then there's the next question, is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? And there's where you're thinking, wait a minute, I think I know the answer to this. It's not enough, right? No, the answer says. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Now, 
I hope you know that when I preach, and especially when I preach directly about life as an imperfect imitation of God, that it freaks me out a little bit. Okay? I mean, I mean, who am I to preach like this? I mean, who am I, the guy who had to go back to Whole Foods and apologize for losing his patience with a customer service person at least once? I, <laughs> I say at least once because the one, the one that I remember was like when I was halfway home. <laughs> I think the other times I don't remember because maybe it was like I realized it in the moment and said I'm sorry. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I know I'm broken. I know my failure, okay? And I'm learning about my failures more and more. So when I preach, I'm well aware of that. But, but here's the thing. Whether it's you or me, okay? Whether it's you or me teaching, when we come to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, we have a decision to make. We have a decision to make. We will either settle for game playing and figuring out all sorts of ways to manage our lives with tricks, like making promises with fingers crossed, etc. Or, or we will lean into the very scary and certain to fail life of following Jesus towards imitation of God. And whether it is you or me teaching this, to whomever, we will always feel a little bit like a fraud, okay? Because we know ourselves, and then we realize that we're teaching what's true, and that that's just the way life is. We don't do it perfectly. We teach. That's why I love, you know, when when in the New Testament it says, "Imitate me, imitate me, imitate me." Whether it's Paul or somebody else, what's being said there is not imitate me. But when you see something in me that points you to Jesus, imitate that. Because once in a while, I'll point you to Jesus. That's good, right? Um, And we will be tempted to get cynical sometimes. And we'll hear this and we'll think, eh, no one really lives like that. Come on. Just don't take it all so seriously. Just realize you're a sinner Every week you get forgiveness. But all the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, eh. Nobody really lives like that. At that point, my challenge to you and my challenge to myself would be not to ask questions about whether it's true in the abstract, but ask more practical ones, like this one. Who would you rather live next to you? Who would you rather live next to you? Who would you rather entrust your children to if you have kids? Or who would you rather have your friends entrust their children to that you've become honorary aunts and uncles to? Someone who thinks that they have not harmed you that if they have not harmed you, they have fulfilled their obligation to be your neighbor? Or would you rather live next door to someone? Would you rather entrust yourself and children in your life 
is someone who understands that being a neighbor entails loving as God has loved them. That's really the only question you have to ask. Who would you rather live next door to? You'd rather live next door to someone who is failing every day and every day asking God for the strength to lean into what Jesus is teaching here about the higher intent of the law. Not play games, but engage earnestly in that life of leaning in and failing and repenting and leaning in and keeping moving all along. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.